Good morning again. It is certainly good to worship with you. And it is good to be able to bring to you God's Word again. Thank you for bearing with me these past weeks. And certainly thank you for praying for me. Uh, It is much needed. Uh, I am not here. um, I am not preaching anything of value unless... The Holy Spirit comes with me. And you are here for no reason unless the Spirit is with you. So may God's Spirit be with us both this day. And if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to the book of Psalms. And today, Psalm 16. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had your life flash before your eyes? Maybe, but I hope not. (laughs) Usually when that happens, if you're aware of it, and it appears to be quite the common thing, usually you're faced with imminent death. If your life is flashing before your eyes, maybe you've heard about this. This is, uh, again, where where someone is, is come face to face with death or some great danger and causes them in their mind to really see, put before them all at once, uh, their life. The totality of it, the significance of it, uh, the great events and people that shape it. It all comes rushing before them. So I hope you've never had opportunity to have your life flash before your eyes, but it kind of reminds me of what's happening here with David in Psalm 16. It seems as though David is faced with some very real, immediate threat to his life. And he has this moment of consideration, this brief insight here into what's valuable, what's important in his life. And you might think with someone like David, surely it's got to be quite the, the flash of remarkableness. I mean, think about his life, the things that might come before his eyes. He was quite the man, fighting beasts early on in his youth. Uh, Of course, all of his troubles with Saul, that must have had a great impact on his life. You think about the battles, the many battles, the many victories he had. You think about the turbulent relationships in his family that formed his life, his anointing as king. Surely Goliath must be in there somewhere. A lot of potential material, and yet not a hint of any of those things to be found here. It's quite amazing. There's a a focus here as he considers his life that, that you and I would do well to listen to and learn from. It's almost as if someone had asked uh, David here that uh, first question, a very pointed question, isn't it, from the Heidelberg Catechism? Mm-hmm. That question that says, what is thy only comfort in life and death? It's a very pointed question. Gets straight to the point, doesn't it? And Psalm 16 is, is really David's answer here. So what if someone asked you that question? What would flash before your eyes? What would you see? What would you consider? Psalm 15 talked about that person, that that person who is granted entrance into God's presence to be a worshiper of God. What does the life of a worshiper consist of? Someone who is granted access into the presence of God and all of a sudden belongs to Him, is saved by Him, everything else in life, it just... It fades out of focus. It just simply can't compare to the all-consuming vision that is our God and Savior. That's what we see here before David's eyes in Psalm 16. Let's read it again as we begin. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. 
The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. How it overwhelms the heart. How it puts the truth of life and the reality before us so clearly. I pray, God, for clearness, surely. I pray, God, that you would grant me clear teaching, God, preaching that is true and right. God, I pray that you would grant us all ears to hear, that we may readily understand the things that you have spoken. We ask it for our own sake. Surely we ask it for ourselves. And we do ask it for your glory. And we ask it for the honor of our Savior. In his name, amen. So, as David here surveys his life, he notes uh, several things. He notes at least four things that stand out. I'm sure there are more, but... uh, Again, you know, I, I do thank you for your prayers. And Jason mentioned Psalm 16 being so precious. It is. It's just so overwhelming. And I, I dare not do it justice, but I, I do hope that we will glean much from this psalm. And so I want to point you to four things that David mentions. His, his refuge, his inheritance, his counsel, and his joy. Okay? Okay. His refuge, his inheritance, his counsel, and his joy. And we start there in those first opening words of his psalm with his refuge. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So here at the beginning of the psalm, we, we have David's prayer, don't we? He comes to God and he seeks what? He's seeking preservation here. Again, we get back to this idea of something is going on in David's life that is, has really shaken him. Okay, And uh, we, we start out there with the idea of the request, preserve me, God, for you're my refuge. And then you take in the whole psalm where he's kind of thinking about his life and what's important. And then you get to the end where he's talking about a rescue from death. And certainly something, although we don't know what, is really confronting David with his own mortality here. Perhaps his life is in imminent danger, though you really wouldn't get that from the tone of the psalm, would you? I mean, look at the tone. It's so positive, so very encouraging and full of hope. And the first thing he considers is this encouraging idea of God is his refuge there in the opening. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Understand here, David wasn't turning to God as some sort of uh, panicked last resort. I'm in trouble now. I'm going to run to God so that I can be preserved and protected. We see time and time again that God was David's refuge always in all things. Think about the handful of psalms that we've already encountered, just a, just a few that mention this idea, this wonderful encouragement of God as our refuge. You think of Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 5, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. Psalm 14, the Lord is His refuge. See a pattern here far from the last mention of this idea. 
David has taken God for his refuge. Certainly when he's in danger, when he's in need, God is there for his protection. Although it doesn't seem like David, of all people, would necessarily be that dependent. I mean, after all, he's a king. He has a whole nation at his disposal, a fortified city for protection, armies at his disposal. And yet, he sees when he thinks about his refuge, simply the Lord. The Lord is it. If he has the Lord, he has everything. If he doesn't have the Lord as his protection, he's got nothing, even as king. And so, this is what David is considering here. And he makes clear in the following verse that it's not simply when he's in trouble, but it's at all times. Reminds me of the, the hymn, Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head under the shadow of your wing. This is David's cry. This is David's thought about God. Look there in verse 2, where David says, The Lord, excuse me, I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good besides you. So having God as his refuge doesn't mean that he has somewhere to run to when trouble comes, when trials are upon him. He has simply placed God as his refuge placed himself under the protection of God Almighty as a normal course of his life. You see what he says there. He says, I said to the Lord, this is Yahweh, I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. In other words, I said to God, you are my sovereign. You are my ruler, my king. You are the one that I place my whole life under. It implies what? It implies a submission, right? David is submitting to God. This is the idea of his refuge. If God is good and mighty enough to help and to save us in time of trouble, is he not worthy of submitting to in all of life? Sure. Not just in trials, but having God for your refuge means, yes, protection from evil on the one hand, but it also means on the other that you are provided every good thing under God. And that's what he gets to, right? This idea of refuge naturally leads him to consider, Lord, I have no good besides you. In other words, by placing his life under the rule and authority of the Lord Most High, David recognizes that the Lord is his ultimate good. Where else would he be but under the Lord? He is both the greatest good that we can possibly have. This idea of there is no good besides you means there's there's nothing good beyond God. When you get to God, you've reached the pinnacle. He is the ultimate good. It also implies that God is the very source of all good things, right? So any good thing that we can have is from Him. Have you come to this realization in your own life, I wonder? The Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle James reminds us, doesn't he? Every good thing that is given, every perfect gift is from where? From above. From the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. All good that you or anyone can ever have in this life, small things, big things, things that simply go unnoticed, common graces, dramatic blessings, you name it. Every good gift comes from a good and generous God who is full of mercy and gives and gives and gives. So we can rightly see any good thing, name it, the, uh, the wonderful pleasantness of being in the air conditioning, protected from the discomfort of heat, a good night's rest perhaps, some strength of body, whether small or great, a tasty meal, perhaps, a friendly smile that you encounter, a new job, a new toy maybe, worship together. Every single morsel of goodness that we experience throughout our lives finds its source in the goodness that is God. And so it should do what? 
It should naturally lead our hearts back to that source, that fountain of goodness. It should naturally lead us, our our eyes, to behold Him in His worthiness as our one true refuge. And it should lead our, our, our lips to say with David and confess, I have no good besides you. If it doesn't, you're missing something, aren't you? And I love uh, David's very next thought. As as he's pondering all the goodness of God in his life, and he could name, of course, so many gifts and blessings, but the one he focuses on is one of the best gifts that God gives to his children. What does he say? He's talking about his brothers and sisters, the family of faith that God has given him. What does he say in verse 3? He says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. <clears throat> saints. Those who are holy, those who are set apart is the meaning of the word. And it's a word that often gets easily abused in today's church, right? Saints meaning Set apart those who are the cream of the crop, Christians, those who are believers who have gotten above and beyond in their good deeds and attributing miracles to them. They are set apart beyond all others. No. That's a complete misunderstanding of this, isn't it? Set apart, not by ourselves, not by our deeds. Set apart by who? By God. The wonderful richness of such a word, saints, set apart, meaning we have been chosen in God. That He loved us, that He showered His grace upon us, not that we were at all worthy of His love, and yet His grace toward us was so abundant that He called us to Himself, that He called us out of the darkness and into the wonders of His light, and He made us His. Set apart. What a wonderful thought. And so we're not only brought to God and set apart for Him, but we're brought together, set apart together. Brothers and sisters who now belong together in the family of faith under God. All of us have taken Him as our refuge. Uh, David describes it as, in these colorful terms, the the majestic ones, uh, in whom is all my delight. Surely David must be exaggerating. Either that or people of God that day were much different than today. Look at the reality of the situation. Who are we? Really? I mean, the world certainly thinks very little of us. We're nothing. Worse than nothing, we're often hated and despised and vilified. We're not wise at all according to any of those standards. Not mighty. Not noble, right? But simply... Simply because we belong to God, who is all-wise, who is all-majestic, who is certainly most high and mighty, by belonging to Him, we are holy, we are majestic, we are noble. Are you poor, weak, common, of no influence or status? Maybe, but it doesn't matter. The real question is, Are you chosen by God? Are you filled with His Spirit? Have you been redeemed by the blood of Christ? Do you belong to Him? Well then, you are excellent. You are excellent above any other creature on earth or in heaven. Imagine that. You are God's peculiar treasure. You are His delight. You are the recipient of His grace. You are precious in His sight. And therefore you are loved and delighted in by your brothers and sisters. Not for your own sake, but because of who you belong to. We have this, uh, this instant now. Irrevocable bond with one another that is, that is united in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so, yes, we are recipients of His grace, but more than that, we fellowship in the grace of God with one another. And we, yes, we are the recipients of His great love in Christ Jesus. And more than that, we get to express that love and share it with one another. It's amazing. The gospel blessings that just keep flowing out of the goodness of God. I remember a story, and I wish I could remember the name of the missionary, 
But uh, he uh, was a new missionary in a new country, a foreign country, and he felt very much isolated and alone, away from his friends, away from his church, not speaking the language. And he was walking down a village street one day, and he heard uh, a humming, he heard a tune, and he recognized it. He realized that it was a hymn, a Christian hymn. And so he took up the song himself and eventually found the other man. They found one another and kept singing. Neither one of them understood the other in the language, but they recognized the tune and they recognized something else, that they had an immediate kinship beyond anything else the world offers. And they were filled with this mutual joy and comfort with one another. I also remember uh, a pastor of another generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about his conversion. And he talks about his conversion, that he came to Christ, and that he had not yet, uh, my words, not his, been converted uh, to the family of faith. In other words, he had come to trust in Christ, but he just he didn't realize there was more to it than that. So he kept on with life as usual. He hung out with the same friends. He did the same things. Until one night, everything was transformed for him. Let me, let me let him tell it in his own words. He says... My friends wanted to go to a theater in Leicester Square, and they persuaded me to go with them. I have no idea what the play was about, but they were very excited about it. What I remember is this. As we came out of the theater to the blare and glare of Leicester Square, suddenly a Salvation Army band came along playing some hymn tunes, and I knew these were my people. I've never forgotten it. There's a theme, he says, and... Wagner's opera, the the two pools, the pool of the world and the chorus of the pilgrims, and the contrast between the two. And he says, I very often thought of it, because I know exactly what it means. I suppose I had enjoyed the play. When I heard this band, though, in the hymns, I said, these are my people. They are the people I belong to, and I'm going to belong to them. His life was never the same, not just his social life, but his life was completely transformed, not only by the God that he now belonged to, but by the people of God that he now belonged to as a family. And it brought so much more to his life, and you've discovered this, no doubt, that there are great friendships to be had, great loves and relationships to be had in the world, but they simply cannot compare to the love of the family of faith because there is the love of God himself expressed. There are bonds that will last for eternity to be had. We think often about our kids, surely those of us who are parents, and we worry about them and their influences and their friends. But as believers, even young believers, they may, they may flirt with the delights of the world and the friendships of the world, but they will discover this pool just as surely as, as we have. It's, it's so overwhelming to the soul to understand, to finally understand what it means to belong to the people of God. Moses himself discovered it early on, did he not? And said that he would, he would rather endure ill treatment with the people of God than to participate in the passing pleasures of sin, right? Absolutely. Well, look here. David, David begins to take up this contrast between uh, the saints who are in the earth and, and those who are outside of God. It's the same contrast that we saw presented to us in Psalm 15. It's this, um, <clears throat> it's this idea here of honoring those who honor the Lord and despising the reprobate. In other words, not calling good, evil, or evil good by participating with evil, but honoring those that God honors. And so he says here in verse 4, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. David knew just as surely as God is his refuge and all of his delights are multiplied in having God and having all the goodness of God and his gifts and having the people of God, those who do not have God and do not belong to him, what are they left with? They're left with sorrow upon sorrow. How is that? 
Well, they seek their delight in sin, first of all. We often think, or the world often thinks of of God and His law as something arbitrary, something repressive. God's trying to keep me from having a good time. No. God puts His law and His character out there and He says, obey. Why? Because I have your good in mind. And yet we, we disobey. We go off into sin. We think we're going to find pleasure there. And what does it bring eventually? It brings disappointment. It brings sorrow. But it's not just that. It's the good things in life that we're missing out on without God. Again, enjoying gifts, even without God. His common grace provides so much for us to enjoy. Even if you are against God, even if you are an unbeliever, you enjoy the fruits of His gifts. You enjoy success in the world, maybe wealth in the world, maybe good friendships, maybe the love of a family. But eventually it just brings what? It brings more sorrow. Why? Because it does not lead your heart to the source of this goodness. And therefore you keep accumulating, you keep accumulating, and it never satisfies. So they've traded God. They've bartered for another God. That's what the heart does. We're made to worship. And if we're not worshiping the true God, we're going to worship something else. Set our hearts on something else. And it's not going to satisfy. It's going to bring sorrow. Sin is going to bring sorrow. Good things are even going to bring sorrow. Sorrow upon sorrow until all you're left with is sorrow. And the finality of it in the judgment of God. If you're looking on your life and you don't see the things as David sees them, you need to reevaluate. Because you don't want these sorrows that are already beginning to multiply to end up in everlasting sorrow. Don't let it happen. Today is the day for salvation. David uh, Caldwell said that this command, thou shalt have no other gods but me, it's a command grounded in the nature of things. The necessities, he says, of the human soul. The human soul cannot have any other God without piercing itself through with many sorrows. The moment it adopts as the object of its supreme love and adoration, any other being than the Lord God, it begins to degenerate. David sees life for what it really is. And he sees the worldly successes even and the pleasures that are out there for what they really are. But so few do. So few do. Many, many are seduced away by it. No, David has chosen the Lord as his refuge. He has taken the Lord to be his inheritance, you understand. No false gods for him. No fleeting pleasures. No earthly gain. He has banked everything in his life on belonging to God. Look what he says there, starting in verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. The poetic imagery here is wonderful. And again, I wish we had time to do it full justice. But it's amazing what he's getting at here, okay? He's all at once distancing himself from those who seek false gods, but he's also distancing himself from his fellow Israelites who would claim God on the one hand, but look for inheritance somewhere else. We often call this today a cheap version of Christianity. We want what God can provide, and we'll gladly claim Him, but we're looking for something more substantial than Him. This is exactly what he's alluding to here, because he's alluding to with this terminology that he's using, the lot and the heritage and the inheritance and the lines. He's alluding to what? He's alluding to the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised to the people of Israel and had apportioned to the people of Israel in places like we see in Joshua, where he gave to each tribe a certain measuring, a certain lines. This is your portion. This is your inheritance. The promise fulfilled. But that inheritance didn't last, did it? No. Even David realizes that it's not going to last, and it didn't. It was forfeited in the judgment of God against the people's sin, against their idolatry is what it came down to. In other words, they had this limited perspective again of God, as so many so-called Christians do today, that God is simply a means to an end. 
Enjoying his gifts, looking for forgiveness, sure, that'd be great. Heaven, I'm all in. But getting what you want, but realizing in the end you don't need God himself. People today still fighting over this very land as continuing testimony of our limited perspective of God and his inheritance. You remember the inheritance, though, that God gave to the tribe of Levi, those who would be priests to him? In the book of Joshua 13.32, it tells us, After all the tribes received their portion of the land, these are the territories which Moses apportioned for an inheritance in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho to the east. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised them. The tribe of Levi, to be priests dedicated to God, were not to be tripped up by an earthly inheritance, as it proved so easy to do. They were to receive only the real true inheritance unadulterated God himself was theirs and they belonged to him they had no land and yet they had absolutely everything and this is what we're supposed to realize my friends what is our inheritance it is nothing less than the Lord God himself if you're looking for something else something better you're not going to find it Their heritage was beautiful to them. The land is the ultimate reward. Abraham himself knew this. He was the one first promised the land. And he realized, no, there's there's got to be something more, right? There's got to be something better. A better country. A heavenly country, surely, whose architect and builder is God himself. Yes. He knew what to look for. So many people do not. But God... If he is yours and his goodness is yours, what do you think about your life? If you take a step back, consider it, uh, would you say it's pleasant, your lot? What would you say about your portion? That it's beautiful to behold? Or would you say, well, so far I've been dealt a pretty lousy hand. Uh, I I enjoy some of it, but some of it's lacking. You know, it's, it's a work in progress type of thing. Why are we as Christians commanded to keep an attitude of thanksgiving? Because we are tempted to be very ungrateful. We're tempted to lose sight of what we have and to focus on what we lack or what we still want, to remain like the rest of the world in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. But that should not be so for us. We we who have been given redemption in Christ, We who have been granted the forgiveness of all of our sins. We who have the outpouring of the very Holy Spirit in our life. We who have been granted every spiritual blessing as we pray. We who have the provision and the promise of a faithful Father. Why would we be dissatisfied ever with such a lot? We're not looking at the providence of God in our lives rightly. We should be overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed with the blessings that God has provided. The true beauty of our heritage in Jesus Christ. But we're so easily drawn by lust into worldliness, into false dreams of something different, better, into satisfactions outside of God. What does the old hymn say? When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold, Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy. Your reward in heaven, your home on high. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. It's a simple, catchy, wonderful little hymn. So very needful, isn't it? Those reminders. Take stock. What is it you actually have? And and count your blessings. They will soon overwhelm you. And take stock of your life and count up all of these things that you're really banking on, loving and putting and investing your life in that are what? Rubbish. You've got a bunch of it, my friend. 
You've got a bunch of garbage that you just treasure so much and put so much of yourself into. And you need to take stock of your life and see what matters. You need to see with David or, or the Apostle Paul who said, I've got all these earthly achievements, these personal achievements, these successes. Guess what? I count them as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Simply can't compare The reality is so stark, and I hope that you see it. David, assessing his life, he has many personal achievements, many earthly treasures, also many personal failures, many terrible hardships to regret. He doesn't doesn't see any of that. All he sees is a beautiful heritage, a pleasant provision because of the grace of God. And to have that and to have nothing else besides is to have absolutely everything. He sees it. He's satisfied. He's content. He says in Psalm 40, Many, O Lord God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. David, considering his blessings, is just overcome with praise and thankfulness and joy. We see it there in our own psalm. Verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. The Lord is his counsel. I wish we had more time to contemplate it. But hopefully you realize this in your own life. Where would we be without the counsel of the Lord? And I don't want to assume it goes without saying, but what is he talking about here? Counsel. Because in our day and age, that could mean any number of things. We often say, God told me this, God told me that, and we leave it there. But no, we have to be more discerning. What is David talking about? David is talking about counsel. He's talking about what the Psalms hold up again and again, what he himself holds up again and again, which is the wonderful, perfect law of God. His word is my counsel. And it's wonderful. It is a precious, needful, necessary gift. Uh, His wisdom. This is the continuing education and the greatest subject of all, the knowledge of God. And and David's phrasing here, again, is just so helpful. He, He appreciates it from three different angles, if you will. The first one being, the Lord has counseled me. He just appreciates who this gift is from and what it is that's been given. It is the very word of God spoken by the prophets, by the apostles, and in these last days by Christ himself, his own son. Why? Because God desires to lay before us himself. Give us his word so that we may enter into the knowledge of who he is and that we may know the way to salvation. And so we should bless the Lord for his word. We should treasure this word. It should, like with David, be our counsel. Yes, there are other instructions, other places of wisdom and education to be had in the world. And they can offer you much good. But none of them, like the counsel of the word of God. It lasts forever. And it never fails. And it leads to salvation. The Bible Read the word preached and taught, taken into us, abiding in us. This is the other angle that David looks at here. He says, my mind instructs me in the night. David has so valued and enjoyed God's word. He's so absorbed it into his own mind and heart by pouring over it, by meditating on it, memorizing it, treasuring it. And so even in the night watches when he's all alone with just himself and his own thoughts, He's not alone with his own thoughts, is he? He still has the word of God with him to continue to instruct him, to continue to guide him, to continue to comfort him. The word of God inside of us that David can turn to again and again and take advantage of in every aspect of life. And this is his last point here about this counsel in verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. David is careful not to neglect this precious gift of God's revelation of himself. And so 
He, he takes up this word as a sword every day to do battle, as a, as a sword to blaze a trail in the right way he should go. He sets, as it were, the Lord continually before him. In front of me, God, this is where I want you. This is where I need your counsel. You need to filter everything that I do, every decision I make, every word I speak and thought. It needs to come through you. You need to take and guide me by this counsel every single step of the way. Not just for the questions I have or when I feel like I need guidance or encouragement from God. No. All time. For all of life. This should be, as Christ says, our food to do His will. We cannot live by bread alone. We need the Word of God. Every word that comes from His mouth. Keep it in front of you, Christian. Keep the Lord in front of you always to sustain you, to guide your steps, to be for you wisdom, to lead you to salvation, to be for you comfort, to be for you a sure foundation from which you can say with David, I will never be shaken. Again, taking us back to Psalm 15. A firm foundation. Where is it to be found? It's only to be found in the Word of God, which will simply never fail you. Not in this life. It won't fail you. And not even in the life to come. It will guide you and lead you all the way into the very presence of God Himself. Still, you will be unshaken. Residing in a kingdom that is unshaken. Listen to the phrase, continually before me at my right hand, he says. Again, like a, like a true weapon, like a, like a trusting support. He keeps God and his counsel with him at his right hand. And he turns the phrase at the end of the psalm and says what? That because I've got it there, it's going to lead me all the way to the right hand of God himself. It simply won't fail you. All the way, my Savior leads me as the hymn says. What have I to ask beside? Verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. The idea here is that everything, even from his innermost being, is absolutely erupting in joy as he considers what he has in God. What more could I ask for is the conclusion. I have everything in God. As I survey my life, I have a a perfect refuge. I have a, a beautiful inheritance. I have a faithful counselor. I have every reason to rejoice. If you're looking at your life, can you say the same? Now, I will admit that David encounters one problem here at the end. It's gnawing at him. It's one little obstacle in his way. Think of it like this. Let's turn to another catechism question because they're so helpful. The Westminster, what's the first question? We're Baptist, I'm sorry. The second question of a Baptist catechism. It's the same question. What's the question? What is the chief end of man? Kids, you know the answer? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We need that last word, don't we? Forever. What good would it be to glory in God and rejoice in all that He is for us in this life only? It wouldn't do. can't do. David is realizing that. He needs that word forever. He's got so much of this desire and faith for God and he needs it for eternity. That's all that we'll do. And so, you understand, David doesn't realize at this point in the revelation of God much at all about the life to come. He doesn't realize about heaven, eternity, the resurrection, surely. All they know is that they are confronted with death. Every single person and beyond is a mystery. It is Sheol. It's the pit. It's Hades, where everyone goes after die. They, they realize we have eternal souls, but, but what happens is, is again a mystery. David says here, because he has such a trust in the gracious and goodness of God to do for him in death what he has done for him in life, he says what? Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. It's a lot of confidence. 
Now, a lot of commentators pointed to this and say, well, David's, David's confident that God is going to rescue him from this, this danger, this threat that faces his life. And that may be true, but that's not his only confidence. That's made clear by the following two verses, that David has much, much more in mind than just an immediate rescue from death. He's looking for a permanent rescue from death. What does he say there in verses 10 and 11? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You can see, feel David's aching, his longing to get there. Because he knows what his inheritance has waiting for him. But David is not speaking just for himself, is he? We've already shown this to be true. We realize this because we are on the other end of David's promise, proclamation. We're on the other end of this, his prophecy concerning another. Concerning who? The Lord Jesus, right? This is who David is primarily speaking about. And it's so very critical. Let's turn to Acts 2 right quick to see how this wraps up. Acts chapter 2, again, this prophecy is also shown to be fulfilled in Acts chapter 13, but we'll take a look in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is Peter. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so... Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. There it is. The fulfillment of all these promises. The foundation of every hope that David expresses in this life and in the life to come is all found in the Lord Jesus Christ, Him dead, buried, and risen. None of it happens without that. And even David, so long ago, realizes it and looks forward and points us to that same Savior by whom we may obtain all the wonderful, precious promises and provisions of the grace of God. You see, David could never, ever be satisfied because the sad ending of every life is the sad ending of our psalm. David died. Maybe not here, but eventually. Like all men do, he passed away and he was buried and his body did undergo decay. But the sad ending, any sad ending doesn't have to stay sad. Because David has pointed us to the provision of God and His grace that is found only in Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. And though, yes, He was put to death by the cruelty of men, though He did die, and though He was buried in a tomb like everyone else, the promise, the prophecy long on the lips of David finally did come true. Jesus died, but his body did not suffer decay. Why? Because three days later he was raised again. Heart beating, 
lungs breathing, in a glorified body, opening the tomb itself and opening the way, the path of life out of death and into the very presence of God Himself. That's what He has done. David knew it. Do you understand that there is now a path of life to be had for all those who trust in Christ? And it's in the resurrection of Jesus. David was sure God would not give him over to abandonment, death, and decay because his life was built on promises that are found true in Christ. And I hope that those promises are yours because everyone who is now in Christ will be resurrected like him and will be with him where he is. And where is he? He is in the presence of the Father on high where there is fullness of joy to be had, where there is pleasures forever. So we come back to our question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Not talking about only in death to come or only in this life now. I'm talking about both. That's how big of a comfort we're talking about here. Let me just leave you with the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Let's pray. Father, may we have but a measure of Your grace in Your Word today and it will be enough. O God, lead every heart here that still takes comfort and finds false hope false satisfaction and false refuge. Oh God, lead them to Christ and lead them to life everlasting. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would grow our dependence and appreciation upon the heritage that we have in the Lord Jesus. Oh, this gospel inheritance that is more beautiful than anything we might consider, more precious than anything we might long for. I pray, God, that you would only grow it in our hearts and lives so that you may receive the glory in this life and the glory in worship everlastingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.